Namas everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kuchal Mehra. All right. So today's podcast is part of the series. If you guys remember, I've been trying to do this these on and off discussions where I try to have discussions on Hindus, not just in India, but Hindus and the communities outside India in different parts of the world. If you remember, we had a discussion on Hindus in the United Kingdom. I've had discussions on Hindus in North America, primarily America, and maybe now I'll do another discussion on Hindus in Canada. And if so, today's discussion is about Caribbean Hindus, and I'll give you a brief story. Uh, people who know me or are consistent uh, know I I always say this that the Caribbean Hindus are the best Hindus, uh, and there's a story to that. I I remember when I was studying in New York University, Canada. I was taken to a Caribbean Hindu religious function. It was only Caribbean Hindus by an Indian friend of mine. He said, "You need to check this out." And you know, we went there. And I was like, "What was what's going to happen?" I mean, they're just Hindus, right? They might do the puja and 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 everything like we do it. But yeah, they did do the puja. But then they had their own unique festivities, and it it just blew me away. And since that day, I've been a great admirer. And I was always, you know, looking at someone. From the Caribbean islands to talk to me. So today we have uh, with us Dr. Baitaram Ram Harak. Dr. Baitaram Ram Harak was born in Burbis, Guyana. He completed his MA and PhD from NYU, and is currently an adjunct associate professor of political science at Nassau Community College in New York. He has written numerous articles and books that discuss Indo-Caribbean history, politics, and society. Which can be bought on Amazon. You'll see the link uh, in the description. And he's currently working on a couple of biographical accounts of prominent Indo-Caribbeans. He actively campaigned for the restoration of democracy in Guyana in 1992. He currently lives in New York with his family. And a very important factor: if you're an Indian, he used to be a great cricketer. Dr. Ramharak, welcome to the podcast. Well, Kushal uh, Ji, uh, Namaskar. Um, good morning. Uh, I don't know if all of your guests are actually here with us in the morning, but wherever they are, good evening, uh, good day. Um, it is a pleasure for me, a very sincere pleasure for me to be here on your show today. Um, and hopefully, you know, in my head, I'm, I'm hoping to, to share some information about who we are from the Caribbean. Um, even though I'm not currently in the Caribbean, I'm living in, the, in New York, um, but my heart is in the Caribbean, more specifically to Guyana. I, am, I would be considered a third generation um, Girmitia, um, so to speak, uh, from, from the Caribbean. Um, and, you know, for us uh, in the Caribbean, uh, you're looking at primarily three countries where, um, you know, Hindus have a significant uh, population, and those would be Guyana. Uh, Trinidad, there's an island connected to Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, and of course, Suriname. So, so um, again, I, 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 I want to express deep appreciation for you to have me on this show today. And hopefully we can have an interesting discussion about uh, the Hindu family outside of India. So let's let's start with the one thing, the beyond, uh, you know, our, our cultural, social, religious identity that ties us to cricket. So, so what were you a batsman, a bowler, all rounder? Well, what were you? <laughs> well, well, up to well, I, I was a, a bowler and a batsman. Um, you know, in in my high school days, I was an avid cricket fan um, until a ball hit me on my head, and and that brought um, you know my my. My sense of play or being actively engaged in cricket, in a sense, to an end. But obviously, I the interest was still there. 
And for us in the Caribbean, you know, um, given the geographical um, area we're in, obviously the West Indian team playing against others would be important. But generally speaking, you know, Hindus and Indians um, would cheer on the Indian team whenever they're playing. Uh, and even if, whenever they are playing against uh, the West Indian team, and, and again, I guess that shows the connection we share, you know, with our brothers and sisters um, in uh, ancestral India. So, so cricket was my thing, uh, but I've kind of lost uh, some interest over the years because, you know, you, you uh, there's so many things that occupy your life. Um, so, so my one more serious dedication right now is to try to do as much as I can to make sure our history. Uh, in the Caribbean, primarily in Guyana, uh, being recorded, properly recorded. Um, you know, from our perspective, you know, the late uh, Bridgelal from Fiji, you know, uh, made the point that we have to play a role in our history. Um, in the old days, it was the Europeans, you know, who have established that history for us, you know, with all the stereotypes and everything else that they label us with. But we do have to play that role. I mean, it's important now that that India is also going through a sort of a cleansing of the mind, you know, a rejection of the old uh, Markelan, um, you know, syndrome that has been, um, you know, dumped on us, uh, you know, as Indians. So, 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 so that's a process, um, and I think we have to, as I said, we have to play that significant role in defining who we are, because after all, you know, we are, um, you know the people that people are writing about. So we need to have a say in, in how that history is shaped. Right. And I think that's a crucial element in defining ourselves. So maybe we can start from the beginning. So if you could, you know, let's, let's take this letter, structure it in a way where we go to the first instances of Hindus reaching the Caribbean islands. How did they come? And maybe what was the early period of the of uh, of the Hindu journey in the Caribbean islands? Maybe we can start there if you could tell us a little bit about that. All right. So a little bit of history, and I, I don't want to you know lose your audience with with all the numbers. But um, in a nutshell, slavery was abolished, you know, in 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 1834. Um, so then there was a need, of course, by the Europeans to kind of create that. Uh, to, to fill that vacuum. So what we have is a situation where um, the immigrants or the Girmitias uh, from India were taken to all of these diasporic uh, communities owned by the Europeans, right? Um, you know, the same process by which they went to in 1834 into Mauritius, that process was used as an example of a successful um, way of extracting Indians from India and taking them to work in a, a, a sugar plantation. So the, the, the plantation owners in the Caribbean um, replicated that same, you know, sort of experiment with Mauritius. So the first country where Germitias were brought to in the Caribbean uh, was Guyana. This is in 1838. So in 1838, you've got, uh, you know, uh, the first um, two ships landed in May, um, the Hesperus and the Whitby. Um, and then uh, in Jamaica, 1845, you had the um, Fatel Rozak uh, landed in that con uh, colony, British colony. And, and then there was a Dutch um, colony, uh, Suriname, uh, where the first ship came much later in 1873. 
right? The Lala Rook, which landed. Now, of course, there are sprinklings, you know, of Indians in some of the other Caribbean countries, uh, Guadeloupe, uh, Martinique, and so on. So the process of them being brought was very similar to the way they were being brought in Mauritius and Fiji and Natal in South Africa uh, and so on. So, so over the course of, of the years, you know, um, the actual number um, in Guyana, 238 plus uh, thousand were bought. Trinidad, 143,000. Uh, Suriname, 34,000. Of course, Jamaica, 36,000 uh, Indians were brought. So when you look at that number, when I, when I say Indians, uh, the majority of those who were brought, about 85% were Hindus, right? The rest were um, uh, Muslims and, and a sprinkling of, of Christians. So that 85%, um, represented the bulk of the population who were taken to these places. And pretty much overall, we can say that they worked for a five-year uh, period. That's the term of their contract. Um, they were given an opportunity to, to renew that for another five years, right? Uh, but historically, about 35%, about 30 to 35% of the, of the population uh, whose contract were expired were now uh, able to return um, to ancestral uh, India, right? Um, so you're looking at about, you know, 70, 75% of them remaining. Um, interesting uh, scenario because obviously they were now becoming, you know, permanent uh, fixtures of these, um, you know, Caribbean diasporic areas, right? Um, and so they began to build their lives and, and so on. Um, so, so for us, again, that period, as I said, goes back to 1838. Um, so today, uh, you know, we see some processes that are taking place. Uh, we see more of what we call creolization, you know, where um, you know, you've lost some of the, um, you know, the, the religious uh, values that, that, that came with the original um, Indians. There are some things that are still connected. Like I can tell you when we have Hindu weddings, like, you know, we can trace our ancestors back to Allahabad where my, my parents, my family came from um, in UP. When there is a Hindu wedding, there is something which we call a matikor. Uh, I, I don't know if that's still being done in certain parts of um, India, but this is where, you know, the bride, um, you know, is very decorated. They go off and they do something called digging dati, right? This is on the Friday before the wedding uh, on the Sunday. So we do have those, you know, pristine uh, cultural elements uh, that we came in. But to put all of this in a nutshell, um, today in the three countries um, that I mentioned, Trinidad, Guyana, Suriname, uh, Hindus are about, I'd say about between 18 to 25%, right? Um, of um, the population. So we're looking at fifth and sixth, um, you know, generation of Girmitias. And as I said, I am a third um, generation. So, so we do have some challenges, and, but I do want your audience to also know that um, part of our challenge today, uh, well, it, it, it's multifaceted, uh, but, but one of the challenges that people need to understand is that Hindus, um, and Christian Indians, and of course, Muslims, they don't consider themselves connected to India, obviously, uh, but they're seen as Indians because in these societies that have now evolved as multicultural, multi-ethnic societies, the challenge also is being faced uh, from the African population. So 
in Guyana, for instance, Africans have controlled Guyana for 28 years from 1964 um, to 1992. And during that period, there's a, a total destruction of, you know, uh, Indian family uh, culture and so on. Uh, and because of that, the Indian population, which was about 52 percent, let's say in 1980, has now been reduced to about 39 uh, percent. So, so today we have a, a country, Guyana, where the majority of the population lives outside, um, you know, of, of the country itself. Many of them in North America, uh, parts of Queens, and so on. Um, so, and, and one of the other challenge which we can talk about is especially for Hindus is the onslaught of um, conversion proselytization which you know obviously goes back um, you know to the Europeans who saw the Indians as the Koli uh, who ought to be saved and who ought to be civilized and being brought into the real world so so those um, those challenges continue but um, it is a serious problem for for Hindus uh, because you're being, um, you know, faced with all kinds of, um, you know, symbols and messages from the Western, you know, um, you know, Christian establishment that are very prominent uh, in the Caribbean. So that's that's in itself a very, very significant challenge, right, for us. And, and I would say, um, and, and we can talk more about this later. One of the other things I just want to mention is the fact that, um, you know, we also have to be self-critical about who we are. So, so we don't have the leadership among us uh, who understand that ideologically, you know, to be a Hindu, right? If you're, you know, if you're a Muslim, Mecca is important, right? And if you're a Christian, so is Jerusalem. But if you're a Hindu and if you call yourself a Hindu, then obviously India has to figure prominently in how you define yourself. So we don't have that strong connection. And I think I would allocate the blame for that on our leadership on the ground. And also, you know, as, as we were discussing earlier, uh, it's the way India has historically looked at, you know, the diaspora something that's very, very different when you compare how the Chinese uh, look at uh, Chinese in Malaysia or Singapore or wherever, um, or how Israelis would look at Jewish people, uh, you know, who may live outside of Israel. So those would be some of the challenges and, and that, you know, hopefully your audience can understand that historical um, evolution of, of who we are, right? Maybe we can start. I, I also had one question. Well, when it comes to the migration of the Hindu population originally from India to the Caribbean islands, what parts of India was majorly this? Uh, um, could it be only from UP and Bihar primarily? Primarily in the Northeast, we're looking at UP and, and Bihar. Um, there were uh, some uh, people who came from Chennai, Madras, right? Uh, the state of uh, Tamil Nadu. And, and, and we, you, and, you know, if you were to go to uh, the, the Caribbean, Guyana or um, or Trinidad or, or Suriname, uh, you would be able to recognize them. We can recognize them uh, because uh, uh, the folks in Tamil Nadu would be um, engaged in something called Kalimai Puja, right? Um, so, so when you go to the ceremonies, that's what you will see. Uh, but but one of the things you would also notice if you were to travel around, uh, you you could tell you know which home has a Hindu family living because they would have their flag, right, that, which we call the Jandi, 
um, red would be for, you know, uh, Durga, for instance, and those flags will be prominently dis displayed uh, in front of the homes. But so you're looking at uh, Madras, you're looking at um, uh, Bihar and UP, primarily Bihar and UP, were the two dominant states, you know, the, the popular states, you know, so I guess it was easy for the picking. Uh, when the Europeans were trying to recruit. And of course, they would use those fancy words to try to make you feel comfortable to go to these places. Words like Chimitat, you know, Damra, Tapu, or for Suriname, uh, it was called Sri Ram. So it didn't sound like a threatening um, place for you to take that major step to cross the Kalapani, right, to get to that location. So, so these were the, the sort of uh, mischievous and deceitfulness, you know, um, elements of the recruiting process, um, you know, that was involved um, in, in trying to recruit that uh, population and take them to those uh, distant uh, communities. Okay, that's very interesting because uh, one of the reasons I find out about the Bihari and UP connection was uh, when I started listening to the Soka Chetney music. And a lot of the Soka Chetney music has... Um, um, UP Bihari folk songs like Mortor, Mortor, Lava Milai, Sakhi Lava Milai. And I was looking at the lyrics uh, of the singer. I, I forgot the name of the singer. I just love the song. My wife put me onto it because my wife was more, uh, because uh, my wife was more, uh, you know, exposed to the Caribbean Hindu culture than I was, as she was a North American Hindu. And and because uh, in North America, the Caribbean Hindus and the, the Canadian and American Hindus meet more often. So when I got married, and she would tell me all these uh, interesting bits. But now uh, maybe we can talk about uh, this first as because uh, let's get the negativity out first. And, and, I, and I want to say you are spot on in saying that India has let the Caribbean Hindus down. And I, and I say this as an Indian. In fact, uh, to be very honest, uh, India has let every single Hindu down outside India. I, I will not just say the Caribbean Hindus. And there is a reason for that. As we were discussing um, offline, sir, it's my request. Could you narrate that story of the Hindu Students Union in the 1980s when Indra Gandhi had uh, visited uh, North America for, for the viewers? Yeah, well, you know, I, I was sharing an example of, you know, um, how um, confusing uh, India's foreign policy uh, can be, especially when it comes to Girmitias or descendants of Girmitias uh, living abroad, right? You know, we were students, I was a student at, at City College, and we had a, a young student group very concerned about the plight of Indians in Guyana, because at this time, you know, there was a dictatorship, and there was a sort of an Africanization, militarization of Guyana, uh, which was obviously under control of a minority um, a black government. So Hindus and Indians were, in a sense, forced to leave because they were, you know, obviously they were threatened and, and, and they could not really uh, survive under a dictatorship because they were opposing the system. Um, you know, religious items were being banned um, because the government was trying to, you know, control the economy, make sure um, you know, it, it, it has a, a good control over the people living in the country. So so you have all of those, um, you know, elements of what Guyana has become, a dictatorship, right, which ended in 1992. So we were students here and, um, you know, we had a, an Indian group and we, we figured, well, one of the things we ought to do is to reach out to India. Um, the Indian consulate in New York uh, reached out to us as an Indian organization and said, here's an opportunity to, to meet 
you know, with uh, the Prime Minister uh, Indira Gandhi, who I believe was assassinated in '84, if I'm not incorrect. But so our meeting she was, was she okay. was assassinated in. All right. So this was 1980 or 81 when we were invited to meet with her. So we drafted out an extensive uh, letter uh, listing all of the abuses that Indians faced uh, in Guyana. And we, uh, you know, reached out to her and as she was passing, I put it in her hand. We did the namaste, put it in hand. She took that letter. She was a big packet and she handed it over to her, I guess, her security guard. We heard nothing after that. Um, so, so in our mind, you know, this was an indication and we have long suspected this, that India uh, has a very convoluted policy when it comes to Indians abroad. Um, and that has been the tradition, you know, uh, since the Nehru generation. Um, so what we are seeing now, uh, there's some signs of hope. Um, you know, recently um, uh, Narendra Modi has reached out or at least congratulated the, you know, the president of Suriname. Um, Santoki. Uh, in fact, um, I, I believe Modi on his monthly show, uh, I forgot the name of his show, uh, where he said, you know, here's a person, you know. Mankibat. His show is Mankibat. Mankibat. And he congratulated Modi, um, you know, the, the president of Suriname, saying, here's a person, you know, whose family he swore on the Gita, um, you know, uh, when he took the oath. And here's a person who, uh, you know, has a long tradition uh, of being connected to India. And so it was a sign that India was reaching out, right? Um, so this was a whole different scenario that existed uh, in the pre-Modi era. So we were very disappointed, um, you know, and, and I'll, sh I'll share this with you, uh, why India has to have a meaningful role. But first it begin, you know, you expect the motherland, um, you know, to be uh, concerned about, Indians abroad, right? And we're not seeing a lot of that. We we had a, a you know a, a whole month of uh, or a few weeks of um, you know racial attacks against Indians in South Africa, even in an area that was named after Gandhi. There was a very tepid, a very lukewarm response from the Indian government, right? Um, in Guyana, we've had a long tradition um, of. You know, you know, events where Indians were be, being, you know, uprooted and, and so on. Uh, I can cite one example is a place called Wismar in 1964, where an entire village, of course, this was during the uh, colonial time, so responsibility does lie with the, the governor and the British, uh, but you can't ignore the fact that uh, it was Africans who actually uprooted Indians Every Indian in that area was uprooted. Uh, Indian women were raped, right? Their properties were being burned, um, and they were driven out from that area, right? That's a place called Wisma. Um, I'm sharing that as an example, but there are many others, right? Uh, for instance, in 1980, there was a coup uh, in Serena where some of the labor unions were killed, um, and so on. And, and we continue to have these abuse. And closer to home in Fiji, you know, we have a series of coups um, where the population of Fiji has, which was about 50%, has now been reduced to less than, uh, less than, uh, I, I guess, 40%. Um, so, so what my point is that we don't see that role that India should be playing, you know, to reach out. And here's a good reason, an important reason why India should actually reach out. Um, to uh, the Indian population outside of India, because it means that you're now, you know, uh, giving some kind of moral support 
to people outside of India where they can can be some, you know, act as, as some form of lobbying, right, for whatever India wants to do, whether it's at the UN or, or, or so or whatever. Guyana today is considered to be uh, the future Dubai of the Caribbean. There have been tons of oil fields that were discovered in Guyana. Um, you know, India has technology, uh, you know, in terms of uh, developing oil industries where they can really play a role. So that's an important trading link uh, for India right there. And it's also another way, not just in Guyana, but for India to kind of rebuff or at least, you know, challenge um, the encroachment made by uh, India's enemy, China. Uh, in the last decade or so, China has been playing a major role in, in many of these uh, countries where where Indians live, and, and especially those three that I mentioned. Uh, so we don't see that same uh, response from India playing that role, right? Especially given the fact that you have a significant percentage of the, uh, you know, the Hindu population that reside uh, in these places. So, so uh, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm a little pleased that to see that the changes going on in India, you know, where India is in a sense reviving, you know. Uh, or having a renaissance, so to speak, of who they are. Um, and, and hopefully with that renaissance taking place in India, you will see a much more aggressive uh, foreign policy where India can actually um, really believe that the diaspora community, not just in North America and so on, or Europe, but in these other smaller areas, right, can play a significant role. Um, but that, that, you know, that connection has to be much stronger. And unfortunately, I don't see that, um, you know, see one of the positive things um, I would say, Kushalji, about us, in the, when we came on the, the ships, right, the, the Jihaji uh, Bahin, um, uh, brothers and sisters, the shipmates, as they call them, uh, the, the, the whole division, that whole notion of, of the caste division uh, ended. It ended not necessarily on the ship, but also on the plantations. Because remember, they were struggling. They were working together. Uh, they were dealing, you know, with an oppressive uh, society. Um, so over the years, Indians kind of developed that brotherhood. You know, I mean, when I meet Indians from India, I meet a Gujarati or I'm Bengali, and so we don't have that concept. Uh, and if you you've met with Indians from the Caribbean. That kind of language is not part of our repertoire, right? So, so we, we are seen as a united group, except obviously that we're divided, you know, uh, by On Christian. Religion. Right, exactly. Um, so, so, so that that's something you know we, we've kept together as a has kept us together in terms of brotherhood and sisterhood, and, and that exists for us. Um, you know, obviously uh, Indians are seen um, as people who. Uh, primitive, uh, because they, they, they are always accused, and again, goes back to the European tradition, you know, they worship idols and so on, um, they're uncivilized, they uh, live in a rural community, so the entire whole, whole notion of all the stereotypes that were developed about Indians continues today. So, so, they, they, so the whole notion of, you know, having an ideological um, sense of who we are, which can connect uh, the folks in Guyana, Hindus in Guyana with Hindus in Trinidad, Hindus in North America, Hindus in India, that link is is not there. And I think that link has to be made um, 
and it, it, it has to come from both sides. We don't have, you know, the leadership in the Caribbean that understands. So, so and they're always being challenged when they, when they refer to things Indian or, or, or trying to make connection with India. Uh, we don't have political leaders, for instance, you know, who understands that this is an important cultural link, right? So you can be a Guyanese, you can be a Trinidadian, you can be a, a Surinamese, but at the same time, you know, that's a legal definition, but you can also be a Guyanese and a Hindu, right? That's a Hindu element is your cultural definition of who you are. So we don't even have leaders who are bold enough, right, to say, hey, you know, I'm an Indian, I'm a Hindu, um, I love India, um, you know, so I have a tradition that goes back to generations. We don't even have that uh, because there's always that fear. So education, I would say, is an important element also in, in what we're doing. Uh, and that's a whole different area. We don't have anything in the curriculum that really defines who we are. Uh, we're simply mentioned as, as people who came as, you know, there's a very small history um, uh, of who we are, and, and and it's always historical. It doesn't really deal with the current situation of who we are, right? Uh, I mean, when you look at the world today, ethnicity is a defining concept for everyone, right? People have to know who they are, right? You you, so so there was always a, this challenge that okay, we're Trinidadians, we're Guyanese, right? So you don't need to be a Hindu, you don't need to be um, you know a person who gets emotional over things that are connected to India. So those are the challenges we have. Um, I also have to say that when you look at the curriculum in terms of education, that's a key element, right? Um, most Indians do not go into, you know, the social sciences. You know, my father used to tell me, well, you got to be a doctor, you got to be a lawyer. So we don't have that core set of people who goes into, you know, that field so they can understand themselves, their society, and so on. So, so that's a, a, the curriculum um does not reflect, um, you know, the fact that we live in multicultural, multi-ethnic societies. One of the things, I'll give you an example, uh, where our leaders also let us down, uh, you know, we, we normally celebrate something called Indian Arrival Day, right? Um, for, for Indians in Trinidad, I believe it's in June, they've passed a law, it's called Indian Arrival Day. That's when they, the day they came, right? Um, for us in Guyana, um, the government is afraid to use the word Indian, so they call it Arrival Day. So the word Indian is not included because in their minds, it sends a wrong message to the African population. I know, I, I see the look on your face, and that is how um, convoluted uh, this is. So, so, so there is that education element, right? And so we don't have that in the curriculum, right, uh, you know, from the get-go. Um, even at the university level, we don't even have, you know, um, a history course on Indian indenture. We don't have history courses that deal with the Indian experience. So that is the level of where we are. Now, there are courses in, in you know, at the University of the West Indies at that level. But in Guyana, for instance, we don't have anything that comes close to that. So, so education is, is a major issue. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of lacking and feeling this next generation of, of Indians. Um, I mean, I can give you another example. One of the things we, we raise, another issue, is the government um, has created a series of books, right, to promote literacy, you know, which is a, a, a noble cause, right? It's a goal that everybody um, 
should hold on to because it's important. But they have produced a series of books, um, you know, depicting events, right? Um, but when you look at those series of books, it does not include or, or give equal representation to Hindus or Indians overall. Uh, there's also a small population in Guyana, the native Amerindians, you know, I mean, not just Guyana, but in the Caribbean. So even their stories are not being told. So it's a sort of a creolization of the process. So, so I think for us, the challenge is a major one. We have to kind of go back and create uh, that sort of a renaissance to be able to kind of, you know, recoup so much that we have lost uh, over the years. And, and I don't see um, the, you know, the leadership coming from the Hindu community. There are very few, um, you know, who are doing that. Uh, you know, so so it's a challenge, it's a significant challenge. Um, and then on the other hand, we have that sort of a lackadaisical um, effort by India, um, you know, to kind of reach out to Indians uh, in the diaspora. So 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 the challenges are humongous. It's a, they're Himalayan, uh, if I can use that term. Um, so we're kind of left, uh, you know, like um, defenseless, you know, uh, with the sharks. And and um, and I think uh, what you're going to see and what has been happening is you're seeing a continuous decline. Um, of the Hindu population. So that number that I give you that ranges between in the three major countries from let's say 18 to 25, that number has declined, you know, let's say 10 years ago, and we're seeing a continuous decline, um, you know, of the Hindu population. Um, and and that's gonna, that trend by all indication is going to continue. Um, so again, you know, that's, that's another, um, you know, situation uh, we have to deal with. Right? Yep. I, yeah. So I guess the problem is, again, it, this stems from the the larger debate, Dr. Baituram, uh, in India, where, uh, as I was telling you offline, that what is the nature of India? What is, if I was to use uh, uh, the Sanskrit term, chitti, what is India's chitti? Uh, I had uh, Dr. Gautam Desiraju, and we had a discussion on his book, Bharat, India 2.0 and you know one of the things that India has always struggled and it starts even if you look at the constituent assembly debates in India that we had in the first few years uh, post the Britishers leave, left India was on one hand there was this Nehruvian idea of India where India is a British construct and the British really united India and there was nothing basically different jatis living different places and they had nothing in common they were there is no such thing and then uh, the North American Indology departments coming up with new Hinduism, new Hindutva, new Hinduism through, you know, they say it is Vivekananda, Arya Samaj, you know, Swami Dhanan Saraswati. Later on, you have Sri Aurobindo. These these three primarily they focus a lot on coming up with this entity called Hinduism. Then there is this absurd little corner uh, that would also uh say that hinduism starts with advaita vedanta and uh, and you know shankaracharya doing something I, I don't know there are so many theories going around i think sometimes so uh, the, there is a reason why hindus don't go to social sciences because uh to be very fair they just don't make any sense beyond a point uh, to the average person when they listen to so many theories out there and then on the other hand there is this uh this classical idea that india is a civilizational state and and the nature of that civilizational state whether it was sri aurobindo 
uh, in his works till 1919. I mean, multiple works where he has mentioned them or whether it's Swami Vivekananda, whether it's uh, Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan or even the ancient Indian gurus, you know. And this is not to deny the problems inside the Indian society. You know, Hindus are not unique as if Hindus are the only ones who have problems and everybody else is just holding hands and singing Kumaya. Everybody has problems and Hindus are not. I mean, at least I'm not one. Anybody who knows my podcast knows I go after Hindus a lot uh, for the record uh, for their problems. But the problem that what you're facing stems from the debate in India where India refuses to acknowledge its civilizational identity, which is Sanatan Dharma, whether we like it or not, even if we don't want to use the term Hindu, because I think that's not the correct term itself. The civilizational of, uh, identity of India is Sanatan Dharma. And depending on how far you want to take it back to, at least it is a 6,000 year continuing civilization. And that civilization has problems like any other civilization, but it is a civilization. And the negationism of that reality in India, in the post-Nehruvian state, and the small efforts to correct it. And, and, and let me be very clear, while the Narendra Modi government is making some positive steps, they're just not enough. Uh, in my opinion, they're just not enough. They, and like you said, you know, in the Caribbean diaspora or the African Hindu diaspora, they, they, they shy away from even using the word Indian. But that disease is there in India. <laughs> They shy away from using the word Hindu, like uh, the, 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 the Nehru. And this is not secularism like the French practice it. The French mm -hmm. are just concerned with the separation of church and state, and they are very vehement about it. But the French have a civilizational identity, which is based on the French language, French culture, many things. You know, the French don't shy away from their nature. The Indian and the Indian way of being secular was denying everything that the civilization had. And actively enforcing it on everyone else while creating minority ghettos in India. Where, you know, somebody is a Muslim, somebody is a Christian, somebody is this, but a Hindu is not a Hindu. And the Indian state actually actively works in denying the Indian identity, which is Sanatan Dharma. And so what you're facing, I'm just trying to present to you why what has gone down in the diaspora outside India, it trickles down from this mindset in India through its founding fathers. And, and that is the reason uh, whatever problems they're facing. Now, maybe one more question and then I want to talk about the good things also because I don't want to leave people with a bad taste in the mouth. But if you could tell, you know, you, you have written about, you know, you wrote a book about, you know, uh, the problems and the politics of Guyana and the problems Hindus have faced. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because, you know, you're a Guyanese. So if we could talk about it, uh, what are the problems Hindus have faced maybe? And then I'm going to ask you cultural questions because I already have many. All right. So let me just say, you know, when in terms of the Hindu population, we do have um, the Sanatanists who are the majority, right? And then they're, you know, in the early 1900s, we had, um, you know, missionaries, um, Arya Samajas coming uh, into the Caribbean, um, you know, who were very, uh, very much involved in, in trying to uh, promote, you know, or build the Arya Samaj community. Um, and, and generally when they came, they would go to Guyana, Trinidad, Suriname, because that's where the majority of the Indian population uh, would, would reside. But so you do have some kind of, um, you know, friction 
but, but it's, it's not an open, you know, friction as we've seen, let's say, between Indians and Africans. Um, so uh, within the um, Sanatanist community, since they're the majority, you know, they, they have extended and they've built, you know, temples and so on. A lot of Hindus would pray in their home and something we call the matia or, or something that they build next to their home. Uh, but a lot, you would see a lot of temples uh, in the, in, in the Caribbean, um, and but the people who have emerged as the leaders of these organizations, the Sanatanists, are themselves in a way uh, not very progressive in the sense that you know they understand the ideological framework of of who uh, we should be as Hindus or who we are as Hindus. So they 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 would be like the local you know person in the village who could speak a little bit of Sanskrit, a little bit of Hindi. So that power uh, comes to them, and, and, and you know, and they use that power to elevate themselves in the community. But but they're not generally concerned. Right? They would not be the sort of a progressive Hindu who you would like to see as a person who would address things like, you know, um, hey, you know, there is, um, you know, suicide uh, is a problem. There's people, you know, who are alcoholics, right? That's a major issue in the Indian community. Or let's build some, you know, Hindu schools. Let's teach Sanskrit. Let's talk about Indian history. Um, even if they do that, it's done at a limited extent. To, in a limited way. So you don't have that mass outreach. The, 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 the one time I would say, and I would argue that, you know, when you had that sort of a limited renaissance about India uh, within uh, the Caribbean diaspora, and I think that would be extended to other diasporas, also goes back to the early 1900s. Um, you know, obviously this is a time, you know, when you had um, concerns or, or there were news about India, you know, Gandhi was on the scene, he was fighting for independence, um, you know, Rabindranath Tagore, you know, was, was a symbolic uh, person um, at the time, so, so, and India was going through that, you know, uh, sort of... Um, movement for Swaraj, right? Fighting for independence. So so the diasporic Indians, whether they were Christian um, or Hindus, they saw India as being a sort of a place which in a sense was the bastion of Indian culture, right? But maybe not necessarily for uh, the Christians so much because they have accepted Christianity, right? Um, a lot of them being Presbyterians or, or whatever, um, you know, denominations of of Christians, they would have been, but still, even among the Christians, you still had that reverence, right? India was seen as a, a place uh, of tremendous culture, uh, awareness, and so on. So they were very much defensive of, of India, and I think that continued, right? We've seen in the 1930s, um, 19, well, early 1900s in Suriname, you had an Indian organization that was formed. Right to, to address Indian concerns, the same thing in Trinidad, the same thing in Guyana, um, and they were fighting for other things also, right? Uh, things like the, the right to vote, expansion of the franchise, but but they were always very conscious about what was happening in India. So when they have their meetings, for instance, in Guyana, you know, they would sing the Indian national anthem. Um, you know, pictures of Rabindranath Tagore would would hung prominently in the homes. So. Uh, an organization like the British um, Guyana Dramatic Society, uh, for instance, in the 1930s up to World War II, would be very much prominent in is selecting plays, right, coming out of India, plays by Sudraka, you know, Kalidasa, and especially Tagore, plays like Chitra, you know, um, you know, 
the king or queen, uh, Malini, Gora, these were plays that they would translate into English and they would perform them, right? They wanted to be authentic Indian, authentically Indian, and, and they felt this was the way to go. But we've seen all of that reversal, right, uh, come after independence because the government was changed, right? And, and Indian culture, Indians themselves were being marginalized. Uh, so we've seen a reversal of that. So, so the 1930s were a little different. Um, but the Sanatan, Sanatanists are still there. Um, they're also very much aligned with the government, uh, the government of the day. Um, but the unfortunate thing is you don't have that uh, willingness, right, or that aggressive um, move to kind of link the Hindus together in the sense of educating them, providing education. So we don't, and I, you know, I, I spoke about the curriculum where Indian history is missing, uh, and we don't have a lot of educated people who are leaders in these Indian communities who understood or understand uh, the nature of the problems that they're dealing with. Um, so deal with, they deal with very parochial issues, right? Uh, one of the things that I think you know, they should be calling for would be things like, you know, government sponsors of schools. That That's crucial, right? The Christians have their money coming in. Uh, the Muslims have their money coming in from the Middle East. But Hindus don't have that. And we don't get the allocation from the government. In Trinidad, you know, the Sanatan Dharma Mahasabha on their own raised their money to build their own schools. But we don't have a national attempt. Right, we don't have subventions. We don't have money coming in, um, you know, to promote or put Hinduism on the same equal footing as the other, uh, you know, religious entities. So all of those things, you know, are, are in a sense challenges uh, that we do face. Right. Um, so we've kind of drifted away from this whole notion of India being. You know, the I mean, we, you know, we've got people like myself and others, people like the former prime minister of Trinidad, Basdeo Pandey and so on, you know, who have gone to India. You know, they've received the uh, Pravasi Bharatiya Saman Award, right, which was implemented since, I believe, 2003. But that's as far as India will go in terms of recognizing, right? You give them an award and that's the end of it. You go home, right? Then we wait for the next one the following year. Where is that continuous connection? We don't see that, right? We don't have that. We've never had it during the Nehru um you know, years, uh, but we're seeing signs of it happening now. And I think that has to be continuous, right? That has to continue um, to kind of build that bridge, right? And even among the intellectuals among us, right? We don't see that. They don't see, you know, um, you know, when you look at the black population, for instance, right? They have tried to unite people in the diaspora by talking about things like, you know, uh, black pride, something called negritude, Pan-Africanism. We don't have attempts by even our own intellectuals. In fact, some of our intellectuals are bashing Hinduism. I'm sure you're aware of the, um, the you know, the anti-Hindutva, whatever they call it, um, big uh, event last year, right? We have some of our own people who are part of that tradition. Someone, uh, for instance, Gayatra Bahadur wrote a famous book called Koli Woman. You know, she's part of that, uh, that group. Um, that continues to bash uh, Hinduism in India and wherever it exists. So, so challenges upon challenges, you know, that's what we're dealing with, and, and, and we're, we're fighting, uh, you know, to keep the, um, you know, uh, the culture going. Um, but that's what we're dealing with. 
So, okay, so let me ask you this now, because now let's get into the culture itself. So, so do Caribbean Hindus have a temple culture? And how much of a role has, let's say, the temple played in building the, the life of the community? And then how do the temples run? So, so, so what happens there? Well, well, the temple is the one major structure that's there, right? And, and historically, that has evolved because the person who was recognized um, in the community who could, you know, who may have some knowledge of the Vedas or, or you know, who could speak Sanskrit or Hindi, um, you know, I mean, when the Hindus came, they came with their, their books, right? They came with the Bhagavad Gita, they came with the Vedas. Um, but the challenge would have been being able to understand, right? To, to be able to explain, like if you're reading a, a shloka, for instance, you know, are you able to translate that and, and make meaning of it when you're taking a phrase, you know, from the holy text? Are you able to to explain that? Not many people are capable of doing that. So the temple was really the basis. Um, and this is, I think, an important role that they play. This was the basis for preserving Hinduism, because as if you travel throughout the Caribbean, you would see a lot of temples, and of course, you would recognize them by the shape, right? You would, uh, you know, maybe a swastika sign, or um, you know, one of the god or goddesses, uh, you know, maybe in in front or inside. You would see definitely that the jandi, the flags, as we call them, right? So you would see that spread out throughout um, Indian villages because. You know, that's where the activity of Hinduism was being practiced, right? So the local person who had some knowledge, who you could identify as the one, you know, who has some level of education and respect, that person would kind of help, you know, to raise funds to build that temple. But a lot of times these things are done as part of a family affair. Right. So it's very parochial. You know, you would go to the temples on Sundays, you know, have a have a hawan. Um, there, if there's a wedding, you know, you would have the wedding uh, in, in those premises. Um, but that's a traditional way. And that still continues very much today in the Caribbean because mm -hmm. it is the one one place where Hindus can, can you know, congregate, especially on a Sunday. Right. Or there's a wedding. They get together you know, they sing, and then you would have the local, what they call a pandit. And again, these are not necessarily very educated people, well-versed in the language or the tradition, but they know more than the ordinary person. So they could perform uh, those functions, right? Uh, the rituals and so on. Uh, so people feel good, and then they go back home, and then they have to deal with the, all of the issues that society brings um, to them. Right. So, and, and again, that's where the challenge is outside of the temple. But the temple, uh, you know, uh, that's there. So that's the one, you know, um, institutional feature. Of course, as we get into the 50s and 60s, you know, Bollywood has played a significant role. My idols were Shashi Kapoor, you know, Amitabh Bachchan. Um, so the entire village, you know, 70s and 80s would come out. Right. They would walk to the theater. Right. Um, and they would go to see these movies and then they come back wow. home. Right. Um, and then there were some schools in these temples where, you know, you would have people would teach them Hindi. Right. Um, I mean, India has played a limited role over the years, over the decades by giving scholarships. Right. Uh, to Indians to go to India. Um, so we do have a handful of scholars, um, you know, who were trained in India, who studied in India. Um, uh, one of the most, um, progressive, significant, you know, who understand the, uh, the society very, very well, uh, who has built a Hindu school uh, and whose uh, students do very well, Swami Akshwananda, 
Um, you know, his school, I would say, is one of the best uh, there is. Um, he has a PhD in, you know, in Hinduism. He's well-trained. He understands the issues. Um, so we, we don't have many folks like him, right, um, who can really, you know, understand everything that's going on. And he's also willing to take actions. He's a frequent uh, writer uh, in the letter columns addressing Hindu issues and so on, you know, like when... Uh, you know, you have an event and only the, uh, the, the Christian prayer is being recited, you know, where is the uh, Hindu uh, present? So, so you have a few of those voices that are significant and very important. Um, and his school, as I said, uh, is very, very, if you do happen to get a chance to visit Guyana, that would be one of the place. Students are very disciplined, right? They're dressed in the saffron uniform. Um, and, and it is a very, you know, they've, they've topped every exams every year they come out a winner right from the time of their um you know from the time they have been um established and that continues so we need more of that uh, and, and we also need to to kind of include the temples into the more social work that needs to be done uh, the un um ha a few years back has noted that there is a specific location where most hindus live a place called blackbush polar where you have the highest per capita rate of uh, suicide in, um, in the country. So those are things that need to be addressed, right? So, so there's a real need for these uh, religious organizations to be more socially oriented to address, you know, all of these, um, you know, problems uh, that you see within the Hindu community. Uh, and I, I don't want to sound very bleak, but, you know, I'm just trying to present a reality um, of the situation, you know, in terms of what we're dealing with. Uh, uh, we'll get into what maybe, okay, let me ask then, then, then how can we maybe help? Uh, okay, so I am an Indian Hindu from India. I am now hosting this platform and whatever I've made of it in the last five years, I've come to a certain spot as far as this platform is concerned, where it has, it has a I won't say a huge voice, but a significant voice inside the community in India and in the diaspora, whatever little voice I have. So what can I do or what can we as Indian Hindus do to help the Hindu community in the Caribbean islands? Then, Well, in terms of, you know, uh, things that can be done specifically, there are organizations, right? A lot of them are also based in the diaspora um, that you know, that make frequent donations and things like that. But I'm thinking more of a sort of a broad-based approach. And I think it goes back to this whole notion of understanding who we are. And when I say broad-based, I mean it has to be tackled at a level that really has a serious impact, right, a long-term impact. And I think education is really one place uh, where uh, we have to be able to look at what kids are learning in school and maybe lobby the government, right? Lobby governments to make sure we have an inclusive voice. So that would be one one area, right? Um, certainly there are needs of people, immediate needs that needs to be addressed because you can't, you know, um, administer, let's say, uh, you know, uh, therapy to a person uh, who who's having other issues to deal with, like bread and butter issues. So those things have to be addressed. And I think organizations have to play a role in, in, in mobilizing support for those groups. Now, social media obviously is, you know, um, something that we're all in, is a major uh, development 
um, around the world. And, and I think if we can connect with other organizations and maybe continue to expand, right, to, to widen the scope, to get more people to listen, um, I, th I think part of it has to be an education process, right? So we can link up with organizations that may have uh, information about resources, right? Where you can access resource. Um, and I think, again, social media can play a, an important role in terms of providing information, educating people uh, about who they are. And I think that discussion has to continue. I, I don't think we can really do much as individuals, uh, but I do believe that, um, the discussion about issues facing, you know, uh, uh, Hindus has to continue and those outreach has to be made with groups that are on the ground, right, uh, that are doing something already, that are already established and trying to work with those groups to try to promote that uh, level of education uh, and also, you know, sharing information about resources that may that may, may be available and where to access uh, those resources. Because one of the things we know is that if people don't know that there are certain uh, kinds of resources that exist, then they would, it would be difficult for them to tap into uh, those kinds of resources. So information is very crucial, getting information to people. And I think that's where, you know, to answer your question, where we can help, right? Um, Aside from that, I think if we are concerned about, if the question is about being concerned about Hindus and maybe other groups of people who are facing similar challenges, I think lobbying government, right, bringing these, this information to government um, and focusing attention on these issues are very, very, very crucial also so that, you know, uh, policies can be developed, um, funding can be allocated, uh, and outreach uh, systems can be set up to address um, issues, you know, that these uh, communities may face. And it's not just, you know, necessarily the Hindu community, but there's a, most Indians in, in, in the Caribbean tend to live in a rural, right, uh, area because they, you know, they, they develop the agriculture uh, base and they kind of, uh, they, they're kind of connected to the land. Um, so that, especially that community, uh, you know, needs to have access to resources and information. So, so those would be some ways I, I would say that, you know, we can address some of the problems that we're dealing with. So is proselytization a problem for Hindus in the Caribbean? It has historically been, been a major uh, problem. It continues to be a, a major uh, issue that Hindus have to deal with. Um, and as I said, one of the, you know, when you look at the trend of the Hindu population, um, the, the percentage of Hindus, a number of Hindus uh, have been declining. And, and there are some projections that if the trend continues, uh, that population is probably going to be wiped out at some point or be very minuscule. Um, and, can, and Can I just come in and ask you a specific question? Yeah. When it comes to reducing population, how much of it is due to proselytization and maybe a significant chunk of it would be maybe they're just educated and with education, your reproduction rates naturally tend to fall down? I think with both, um, I mean, the issue has to do with education and it has to do with, you know, the forces that you're up against, right? Um, Indians traditionally, um, we know the history of proselytization when it comes to that, right? That's no secret. 
when the Europeans came, you know, for you to get a job, you have to be able to convert to Christianity. Uh, Hindu marriages were not recognized because they were considered heathens and, and your kids were considered, you know, if I can use the word bastards um, or, or illegitimate, that's, you know, so um, those were challenges that they were faced with, right? Uh, even if a, um, a Hindu priest uh, would, uh, you know, consummate or help consummate the marriage between two people, it was still not considered uh, uh, legal. So traditionally, Hindus will have to convert to get a, a position in, in the government. That's how they get things like scholarship and so on. So Christian Hindus have always played a major role right, in speaking out on behalf of, uh, of Indians in general. Obviously, you know, they have been, uh, if they have accepted, you know, Christianity, it's not something that they would defend, right, when it comes to, um, to Hindus. So they would, they would in, a, in other words, they would not defend the fact that Hindus should remain Hindus, right? They've converted, so they would like to see other people, you know, follow the same path. So many of the leadership, many of the organizations in the 1930s that I mentioned, you know, were led by, but not necessarily all of them Christian uh, Indians, but there was a, a significant percentage of, of Christians who were engaged in leadership of those organizations. So, so that's part of it, right? Um, it's the education. To come back to the whole notion of proselytization, um, you have organizations that are being funded from the West, very, very aggressive, right? They have television program. Uh, what they do is they come and they set up a tent, right? And they would uh, approach the, uh, and they do this in Hindu communities, right? And they would say, look, um, you know, we have a crusade. Can you join us? Um, and what they would do, offer some maybe uh, monetary, um, you know, offer something in terms of money uh, or promises, right? Uh, your life is going to be saved. You know, you're engaged in in in, in a religion. You know, um, that's not going to get you anywhere. So Christianity will save you. Will help you sa save your soul. You'll go to heaven. The, you know, life will be better if you become a Christian. So the, you, you would see a lot of these tents, crusade tents being set up. Um, so the level of bombardment is very, very, um, it's massive, I, I would say. So, so you have that proselytization that continues, right? Um, and of course, there, there's that whole notion that the Hindu, being a Hindu is, is sort of a, you're not really civilized in the sense that you're practicing a religion, you know, that is ancient, it, 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 you're idol worshiping and things like that. So therefore you need to be converted to save. So, so that is a, a tremendous uh, issue that uh, Hindus are dealing with. Of course, um, you know, the Muslims have, as I said, they have their own funding, they have their own schools, they're very organized. Uh, you would see Muslims, you know, women wearing uh, hijab, you know, this is something that has already changed over the last few decades. Um, you know, Christians have their own temples. They have a lot of money coming in. So we don't see that among Hindus. So, so that is a major challenge. So it's a level of education uh, where a person who generally converts to Christianity uh, does not share any allegiance um, or very weak allegiance to, to, the, to Hindus or to India. So that's a break that comes uh, with conversion. Um, and that does exist uh, throughout, you know, not just the Caribbean, it's there. Um, 
so so in a nutshell proselytization is a, is a major uh, concern for hindus and and if you look at some of the responses and their letter columns and so on uh, from religious leaders this is an this is an argument and a point that they generally make um, in the community because it is often taken for granted that the hindus are there so um, you know why have a, a, a hindu priest you, in a sense you have to ask to make that request, right, to ensure that a Hindu uh, element is there when you have public functions, especially in a society that claims that they are not promoting uh, a specific religion. So Christianity has the dominant um, say in these cultures. And of course, the Muslim community are very organized, right? You know, they do what they have to do. Um, but the, the weaker ones, obviously, would be the Hindu community, where we don't have a national support. Uh, we don't have, you know, support from outside of India or funds where we can tap into to help build Hindu schools and so on. So, so we don't have all of those things that the other communities have. That's very interesting. And you know what I find fascinating in this entire process is that even within the African community of the Caribbean islands, I mean, Christianity obviously might be the major religion there, but like I've tried to ask this question to my whatever little Caribbean connections I have in the African uh, descent. And I'm like, what happened to your ancestral faith? Do you guys try to explore it? And is there any interest? And, you know, like they, they don't even know much about it, which is the fascinating aspect. Like, uh, so I guess Christianity really did a number on them primarily first till the extent that you know, they have completely lost their connections to their ancestral faiths or, I mean, um, but in our case, I guess, you know, we're the only living, breathing people who actually fought back intellectually in the real sense. And we said, nah, we're not going anywhere. This is our idea. This is our faith. We're sticking to it no matter what you do. And, and I have to say credit to the Caribbean Hindus that, you know, there's still a major community in the Caribbean islands. They, they, they don't go away. They celebrate their festivals. Uh, you know, in that sense, I think the colonizer, I'm not saying they lost, but they never really won either with us. Yeah. Well, well, you, you're absolutely correct about, you know, Africans being more creolized. They've lost their language, their religion, uh, and so on. Uh, but there is one thing we can say about the African community is that they are united in the sense of knowing who they are. Now, they may not have the traditional language um, or, or have the African name uh, or so on, but they are united and they understand that, you know, movements like the Black Lives Matters, you, you know, um, negritude or Pan-Africanism and so on, those are issues and ideolog ideological elements that keep them united as a group. So yes, you know they have been creolized, and and uh, when they look at Indians, sometimes there is that um, you know sort of a con contentious belief that okay, you know we have lost our culture over the years, but you do maintain yours. In fact, sometimes um, you know that can be a source of tension because there are some people who would argue, well, uh, you know. Obviously, it's an incorrect um, argument to make because it doesn't make any sense. But they would say that, well, Hindus are the ones who are racist towards us because they have this caste notion of, you know, people who are dark skinned or, you know, should be on the bottom of the, you know, the social scale, whatever. So they attribute that whole notion. And there's a, a couple of books that have been written about this by people who claim to be professors. 
uh, about the caste system, connecting that to racism against uh, black folks in the Caribbean. It's a fallacious, very, very fallacious argument, obviously. But but yes, and you're also correct in the fact that, you know, Hindus have survived. And as I said before, there are some pristine um, elements of Hinduism that they have survived with. I can tell you, I don't, I don't know if this is still a tradition. I mentioned the Matikor uh, celebration where the woman, in, in a sense, become liberated. They do the uh, the henna, you know, and it's a woman thing. And on, on Friday, they go out and what they call digging dati. There's a ceremony, right, um, that's involved. Um, uh, I used to be uh, something what is called a saibala. Uh, you know, when uh, the brother was getting married, uh, you can be, the boy can be a chaperone in the Hindu wedding. Um, so the Saibala was an element of that. You know, we get married. In Punjab, we call it Sarbala. The Sarbala. small yeah, boy that, that sits in front with the guy, or the the uh, the groom. There you go. And and we have something important when you get married in the old way, in the old days. And, and this is still done. Um, you know, it, it's a, a, a the tent right? That's being built. So we see you get married under, um, you know, under a bamboo ceremony or a maro, right? Um, so, and, you know, we do the traditional eating, you know, uh, with the leaf, which we cut from the the, the pond nearby, uh, and we serve the food, you know, on, on the leaf, right? The lily leaf. Um, so that's something you would see, um, you know, if you go to certain functions, there's a hawan, or even a wedding, right? We do the seven curry, um, you know, um, you know, when we serve the food, there's seven uh, different curries that you can have, right? So that's a common thing that's there that, that all Hindus are aware of and, and very much aware of. And, and uh, so, so there are some of those traditional elements of what they brought with them, uh, you know, when they came in the 1800s that still remains with them. And, and my guess is some of those traditions have undergone changes in Bihar and UP, right? Um, so, so that could be a sort of a difference between, you know, the, our Hindu community um, where we are in the Caribbean uh, compared to where we were. I, I should say that one of the things that is becoming more common today is this sort of immigration root search where people, you know, are tracing their roots, right? We have the immigration pass. Uh, Basdeo Pandey, the Prime Minister of uh, Trinidad, has done that. Uh, Kamala Bisesar, uh, you know, in uh, Trinidad, who was also a Prime Minister, went back. They, they, she traced her roots. The entire village came out, um, you know, to greet her. So that that's a common thing, uh, you know. But one of the challenges that we are faced with is that some of those immigration records are not being protected. Because you can take those records, the immigration pass, for instance, and trace your family back. Um, I am currently doing that with, with my from my mother's side, uh, but it's becoming a sort of a common uh, trend. And places like Fiji, Mauritius, Suriname have been successful in, in digitizing, right? Uh, those records, so it becomes easy. So you could sit in a room in, in Bombay, you know, and and try to get a, a record of your ancestors who went to Fiji. Right uh, now, that's not done in all of the diasporic uh, communities. Um, I can tell you, in Guyana, it's in terrible shape. Even with the so-called Indian government in place today, um, somehow dealing with anything that's connected to India uh, or Indians, which would include documenting 
or digitizing our record for posterity, that's something that's not being uh, done. So, so that's a, a sort of a trend that's developing. So, so I, I would argue that there's a sort of um, uh, a revival, but a small revival among um, a small group of people who understand that India uh, plays a role for us as Hindus. So I'm so I'm seeing people trying to make that connection. You know, obviously India is going to have a population, you know, far greater than China in a couple of years. Uh, India is a major uh, player, uh, you know, at the international level. Um, so all of those things kind of serve to put India, uh, you know, in our in our view, right? So so we can kind of make that connection, uh, or at least revive the connection that we have kind of lost uh, over the generation. So that's a positive uh, sign that I think, you know, that's developing. And, I, and you know, I, I don't think people are ashamed of being, of seeing that, you know, I'm a Hindu. I mean, there's still elements of those, but, but I think uh, as we kind of continue to make those connections, we're seeing that India can play a much greater role in our lives as Hindus, and it ought to, right? Because as I said, you can't be a Hindu and not consider what's happening in India, right? That connection has to be there. So that would that would be a, a positive thing that I think that's that's developing. Um, you know, that's that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So now I'm going to take a few questions before we wrap it up because we have to wrap it up soon. So. Uh, let's let's take the first one, the most uncomfortable question, which is always stuck at Hindus. So, do Hindus in Guyana practice casteism or any kind of purity and pollution? Well, um, in, in terms of when when we talk about caste, the first thing that comes to mind is okay. Um, there's one group of people who are superior, and everybody else. Uh, you know, are inferior, right? Uh, we do have some of that that exists in the temples, right, among the priests who uh, traditionally, it, I mean, priests will always claim that they are Brahmin. That gives them the power to say, okay, I can be a priest, right? But priests can also, priests who can, you know, being a Brahmin can also be something that's very corrupted, right, over the years. So that uh, division has changed over the years. So it's not as very uh, strict as it is maybe you, as you would see in India. So so we don't have that. Uh, but definitely we do have the, the usual, you know, things like dietary requirements where we don't eat beef or pork, uh, things like that. So, so all of those elements uh, stay within the Hindu tradition. But, but certainly um, elements of the caste system uh, as it exists in India, um, especially in the rural areas, we don't we don't have that uh, in the Hindu community. But people would like to say that they are Brahmin, um, especially if they have some level of power or believe that they have that power uh, over Hindus, and so therefore they can be a priest in the temple, right? So so you would see those things rearing their heads, right, um, from time to time. But 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 uh, but what if let's say if I'm I'm a trained pundit. I might be from any particular jati. It does not matter, right? By by the so-called jati by birth system, which is practiced in different forms in different levels. But like in India, I'll give you an example. Now, in the RSS, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, and many other organizations are actively training uh, people as pundits who are erstwhile called the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes or the Dalits in India. And they are making them pundits and they are being absorbed in major... Uh, temples in India as pundits. They go in as a pundit. So technically they are a Brahmin in that sense and they do the puja, they do everything in those temples in India. So would that be possible in a Caribbean Hindu 
system? Well, well we have the Hindu, the Sanatanist organization that's connected, uh, you know, with the government, right? Uh, the People's Progressive Party, for instance, uh, try to, con and this is another way they try to control the population because it's an important, uh, you know, voting block when you do that. Uh, but we do have some level of training, you know, people are sent to India, you know, they may go there for a couple of months or years or whatever, and then they come back with the knowledge, right? Um, they can speak the language. So those people are automatically given, you've been to India, okay, then you're seen as an important person in the community. Uh, and if they want to become a, a local pundit, that's what happens. But very often also you have, um, you know, the, the children of those people who were once considered pandit in the local village, but also develop, you know, that tradition. And they now, so it becomes a generational uh, thing where they can now become, you know, a pandit who can administer services to the community. Um, so in terms of training, uh, we don't have a lot of that training taking place in the Caribbean, but it takes place outside uh, of the Caribbean, which entails going to India right, to, to receive that training. And, and it is seen once you've done that part of it, uh, you can now make the claim that, okay, I've been trained, right? I can speak the language and, and therefore the community will allocate that kind of um, accolade to that kind of person who makes those claims because going to India is an important um, element to that training. I'll tell you why, because I clearly remember in the year 2018 in the times of Bangalore Mirror, if I remember, not the times of India, it was the Bangalore Mirror, uh, uh, op-ed was written by someone who is not very fond of Hindutva, by the way. His name is Devdat Patnaik. And Devdat Patnaik uh, had written uh, this opinion piece on a Sunday. I clearly remember this. It was called Hinduism in the Caribbean. And I'm going to read a quote from it. A unique feature of Caribbean Hinduism is that it doesn't have the caste system. People in this community came mostly from, from came from mostly Bihar, the United Provinces, and the Madras province, belonging to different castes. As they traveled in ships together and lived side by side, they could not follow the rules of the traditional social hierarchy based on purity. There were very few women among the migrants, so it was not possible to marry only within a particular caste. Irrespective of their social status in India, they they all did the same kind of work here. So the caste barrier eventually collapsed and they became a single homogenous community. However, there is a small section of people who call themselves pundits and function as Brahmins. They see themselves as the elite directing people in spiritual and ritualistic way. So even a guy like Devdat Patnaik, who's not very fond of Hindutva, is actually pretty much saying what you have experienced and said over here, that the caste system... Basically, when Hindus leave India and they basically go on a plane or a boat or a ship or whatever, and they go outside India... The Jati Varna system pretty much collapses. And this is why I always say this, and I stand up for the diaspora. When caste is used as a shtick to beat the diaspora Hindu, that's unfair. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about caste issues? You come to me. I live in India. You talk to us. Why are you going after those poor souls who have no consciousness? To be very honest, they have zero consciousness. And secondly, in the case of the Caribbean Hindus, another important aspect why the caste system cannot survive as they claim it to be is the Arya Samaj. Because the Arya Samaj, honestly, is one of the most reformist, anti-caste movements that India had by Swami Dayan and Saraswati. So if it has made so many inroads over there, it has to be a very diluted form. So, you know, I just wanted to ask this question is A, because a viewer had asked this 
and B, I had my answer ready because I remember I instantly got reminded of Devdutt's piece in 2018. And you know, Devdutt is no fan of Hindutva. Devdutt hates Hindutva with a passion. So I I thought I will use a critic of Hindutva to use uh, and make the point over here. And now all, all the people, you know, I have a lot of uh, progressive left fingers also who listen to the podcast who who think I am some, you know. I don't know what they think about me. Now, please direct your hatred to Shri Devdutt Patnaik. So now I'm going to go on to, uh, to the next question. Um, uh, so do you think being in a way, so I think somebody has made a comment and a question together. Hindus in the Caribbean are the most resilient than the rest of the world. What helps them shape the strong Hindu identity in the Caribbean? Well, there are a couple of factors here, right? And, and, and I just want to add before I get into that. Um, so it's not just a caste system that has been eliminated. And, and most scholars tend to, to argue that this process started on the ship. Yeah, that's true, right? But, but I think it, it, it became much more non-existent on the plantations. Because remember, these people were, you know, the Grimitias were forced to work together. Uh, they were unite, you know, united when they had to fight you know, when they were striking against the Europeans. So that uh, sort of a jihadi experience that on the ship was transferred to the plantation, whether it was a sugar or a coffee plantation. Um, uh, and the other th element of this, aside from the caste system, is we don't have this parochial, um, you know, sense that, that we see in India. Like, you know, my wife actually was born in New Delhi. She's from India. Um, so people would say, well, I'm Gujarati, you know, I'm, I'm Tamil. We don't say that in the Caribbean, right? We say we are Indians. Now, the academic would like to say, well, you, you're South Asians, you know, you're uh, Indo-Caribbean. But all of those terms can be used in context. But but I would prefer the, the word Indian because it implies that we're not hyphenated. We're here, you know, as, as citizens, right, in this region. Um, but I think the Hindu phenomenon, those those two elements, right, well, you know, the, the plantation experience, the ship experience, um, you know, uh, living in these communities uh, cemented the, the whole concept of being a Hindu. I think the other thing we need to understand also is the fact that, you know, you have a, a, a society that is multi-ethnic. When these uh, Hindus uh, were brought, and Indians and into these regions, they, remember they were segregated, right? Because the Europeans wanted to keep you divided. You, you know, you, if there's a strike, you shouldn't work with the Africans, the freed Africans and so on. Um, so you remained divided. So whatever cultural elements you had with you that you came with was preserved. It wasn't in a sense, if I can use the word, contaminated, right? Obviously, as the years go by, you know, you have the creolization, um, you know, that Indians had to to they were faced with, but they, they were still resilient, right? Uh, so you had that threat coming from the other side, right? Uh, we're different from, from those uh, Amerindians or the African communities. So Hinduism, in a sense, was also strengthened by the fact that Indians were a, isolated in communities, so, so they maintained that pristine level of, of the notion or the imagination of what India was, right? Um, over the years, uh, and because they were also faced by, you know, by threats from other communities um, who saw them or labeled them as Indians or Hindus. So therefore, you were now forced, in a sense, to defend yourself, right? Um, so you dis differentiate yourself um, from, from 
you know, from the events and, and, and development on the ground, because you now see yourself as being different from the other communities. So therefore, they were, in a sense, forced to preserve who they are. So if they were not calling themselves necessarily Hindus, they would say we are Indians, because the other side would say, well, this is a, a Indian community, right? You know, um, so, so that element of Hinduism was also preserved through those internal dynamics. And as I said, over the years, you had the missionaries coming from, you know, from India, especially in the 19, early 1900s, you know, um, uh, the folks who were concerned about, you know, promoting Arya Samaj, Swami Dayanand, uh, you know, uh, and then you have the, the whole notion of what was happening in India. So the focus was, was on India as a place where there was so much cultural, political, uh, changes taking place. So the idea of India and being Indian in the diaspora was still in the minds of those people, um, which continued. And obviously, as we said, as the country became independent in the night after World War II, you, you had more of a sort of a creolization process. But that ironically also helped to cement, right, and keep Indians and Hindus together. Uh, but as I said, the forces are tremendous, and um, we're losing member, members in the ranks as the days go by. All right. So I guess before before we wrap up today's podcast, any last words, Dr. Baitaram, that you want uh, to give to the to the the diaspora Hindus and the Hindus in India, both or Indians in general, uh, before we wrap it up. Well, I think we need to recognize first and foremost, you know, that as Hindus, uh, we have an obligation, you know, to pay attention to what's happening in India, right? Uh, that's the motherland, that's the ancestral land from which we came. Uh, but Hindus um, have a, a common problem, and this is another one I think I should mention. It doesn't matter which area in the diaspora we're living, you know, we're also seen as um, soft targets. So anytime there is a conflict, um, the people who you pick on would be the Hindus. So it makes sense, you know, and I'm saying that because if you look at what happened in South Africa, Fiji, Guyana, and, and, and all the, Uganda, and, and, you know, and all of those places where Indians went, we see there's a common trend to attack people for who they are, right? So it makes sense for us to kind of, kind of, you know, unite and keep the focus on who we are. But, but I think we also need to, to take our blinders off and, and in a sense not see each other as divided elements of the diaspora because we do share some common, you know, common experiences. Um, and I think once we can uh, eliminate those bridges, if we can see all of us as, as being a part of the same uh, Hindu family, uh, it means that we can try to address some of the problems that we all face in our respective communities. Um, I also believe that there's some, there has to be some kind of uh, ide ideological orientation that unites us. Um, I mean, Hindus in India are also divided. Right? You talk about some of the, the, the concerns, right? I, we know India is going through a process where they're cleansing their education system, their minds, you know, uh, going back to tradition and looking at all of the elements that cause these divisions uh, in India. I think we also need to kind of uh, go through similar process. But I think the process hopefully in India, um, you know, which is going on there in terms of Hindus understanding who they are, and understanding their history is something that maybe we can learn from uh, in the diaspora 
um, so that we can try to kind of develop a, a sort of a Hinduism that keeps us more united, right? And, and keeps us more focused on understanding who we are historically uh, and as a people, you know, who have a role to play in the different uh, diasporic communities uh, in which we live. So that's, you know, I, I think that would be my message um, out there. Um, and, and hopefully the, the folks in India don't consider us outcasts as they traditionally do, right? Um, so, we, you know, we are um, Hindus, and I think we need to extend that broad um, social tent to include everybody uh, into this, um, you know, into this uh, Hindu family. Absolutely. Dr. Dr. Bhaituram, I can only say this. And again, these are my words. These are not Dr. Bhaituram's words. So do not attribute what comes out of my mouth to his mouth, first of all. Um, I've been a long proponent of political Hinduism, not from today, from a while. Um, what ails the Hindu society primarily is, and I say this again, these are my words, not Bhaituram Saab's words, is the Jati Varna system, which I have always said that it should be completely annihilated right here, sitting in front of you for the annihilation of Jati Varna. And because of that, we have created certain problems. And the solution to that was not proselytizing out of Hinduism. Because it's not like the other side is giving you flowers. They got their own issues. All right? Stay Hindu. Don't fall for the Jati Varna system. Secondly, become a political Hindu. Political Hinduism is the solution for this. When you become a political Hindu, initially political Hinduism took its root in India. Political Hinduism has given you certain answers in India. India will always be the motherland of Hindus. Because 95% of global Hindus live in India. The reason I am going out of my way to do these chats with Hindus from the Caribbean islands, Hindus from North America, Hindus from the United Kingdom, I'm going to try and get Hindus from Africa, different parts of Africa. I'm going to try and get Hindus from every single part of the world to share their uniqueness, share their experience. Secondly, it is for our responsibility as Hindus from India to make sure that we do not subsume the Caribbean Hindu identity, the American Hindu identity, the Canadian Hindu identity, and make them like us. We should learn to accept them the way they are. So, you know, so if you are a very conservative kind of a Hindu in India who does not do certain things, but you might see the Caribbean Hindus doing their dances, which is very much Caribbean in nature. That's yours now. Celebrate it. Appreciate it. You may not find it to your taste. You might even find it shocking at times. But you know what? That's Hinduism. And you better learn to accept it. And once we have this political Hindu identity, that Hindus are a group at a global level, and India is the mothership, and everybody is an equal stakeholder, equal stakeholder, even if there are two Hindus in some remote island in some part of the world, they are equal stakeholders in the political Hindu identity. They will disagree, they will argue, but they are one. And that is the political Hindu project. So I'll end today's podcast on that. And uh, Dr. Bhattaram, thanks a lot for coming on. And Thank you. Namaskar. All right, guys. So if you want to follow Dr. Bhattaram, 
I've left his Twitter handle. You can go and follow him on Twitter. Also, I would highly recommend go and read his books. I've left the Amazon link for his books in the description of the podcast. Doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio-only version on iTunes or Spotify. Go and buy his books. You will get an interesting perspective on the Hindus in the Caribbean. Primarily Guyana, obviously, because he's a Guyanese Hindu. But uh, maybe in the future, I'll I'll try to get a Hindu from Trinidad and Tobago. It's in the it's in the process. I'm gonna get someone from Trinidad and Tobago too, and and I want to do this. And 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 this will be my life's mission. I have built this podcast to make sure that different voices come and speak over here. You know, my viewers and my listeners have blessed me with the strength to keep on going because they keep coming back to me. I'm going to use that strength to give a platform to every single Hindu community wherever they are in the world, and I'm going to try and talk about them and try to reach them. So please keep supporting the Charvak podcast. Like this video. Leave your comments over there. Subscribe to the channel. Try to become a member on Patreon or YouTube or buy the Charvak podcast merch or send your donations to UPI. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye bye.